Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. God doesn't call us to himself and then hang us out to dry. You don't believe that if you do things God's way, he'll provide. Okay, last week we started a series in Ruth. So this week we're in chapter 2 of Ruth. Uh, A little bit of background again on the book of Ruth. It is a small book, only four chapters. Um, Highly underrated uh, in our culture. This this book is very important. Um, It's read at uh, the beginning of Pentecost in in the Israelite tradition. Um, Pentecost is a celebration of God's provision. And Ruth is an entire story about God's provision. So that's why it correlates for them and they read it at Pentecost. The book barely mentions God, though, which is weird. Uh, And there's no miracles. There's no uh, miraculous events in the way we think about miracles. Um, The author in this book is inviting us to see God's provision and and interaction in our day-to-day lives in like the small circumstances. If you read the book of Ruth and you can find how God works in this story, that's a lot of times the way he works in our life. Uh, and we're going to see that really specifically today. Um, the other thing about this book, the reason this book is so important, it paints the picture of the kinsman redeemer. So uh, this is essential to our understanding of redemption. See, without this story, without Ruth, redemption is just a slave purchase. It's, it's we're being bought out of slavery in sin, and God is, is just buying us in kind of a cold, impersonal way. But the, the story of Ruth really doesn't let that be the case, right? So Ruth is the Old Testament story that illustrates that God loves us. He has an actual bond uh, with us, and that's why he reaches out to save us. On top of that, the kinsman redeemer has a right, has an actual legal right to save, to redeem and God has a has a, a right to redeem us. We're His creation. He He owned us from the very beginning, uh, but we never stopped being His property. We never stopped being uh, God's. So He, so God loves us, and He has a right to redeem us. And that's what Ruth is going to show us. Last week we opened with a family leaving home during a famine. Uh, this is a wealthy wealthy family. It, it's a man and his wife and their two sons. Um, they are leaving Israel, I think, because they have a lack of trust in God to provide, because a lot of people in their hometown stay. We see that in chapter 1. And uh, Ruth or Naomi says, I went away full. I came back empty. It appears as though they just didn't want to feel the squeeze of the famine. They left because they just didn't want to get caught up in what the famine meant economically. Uh, so at the, in the middle of chapter 1, all the men die, right? So t- the two sons, they marry Moabite women, they marry foreigners, uh, which is already a problem in the Old Testament. Uh, Israelites weren't supposed to marry foreign women. So they marry these foreign women, they're living in a foreign country, they're not trusting in God, and then all three men die. The father and both sons die. You have just three widows left. Uh, there's a lot of crying in chapter 1. And, uh, and then there's this scene where Naomi says, go back to your homes. You have, I- I'm a widow, 
I can't provide for you. I can't have another son that you can marry uh, in time. And urges them, just go back to your parents and have a better life. And what we see is one daughter who, even though she's emotional about it, all she has is that emotion, she leaves. And then the other stepdaughter, Ruth, she makes this awesome declaration of faith and loyalty. And she says, I won't leave you. I'll be wherever you are. I will go all the way to the grave and beyond with you. And she also makes a declaration of faith in Naomi's God. She says, I'm going to serve your God and your people are going to be my people. Uh, this, this is what, we, what I said last week is this is the ultimate picture of reckless abandon. This is that idea of giving everything to follow God. And then, uh, and then the end of chapter 1 ends with just this kind of foreshadowing phrase. It just says they came back at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this is the author giving us an indication that God's already working something out. Even the timing is just perfect. So this week we're going to see uh, really the love story of Ruth start to blossom. Uh, what, what is today? Easter. Easter, right. Okay, we're going to celebrate today Jesus' love and provision. I want you to keep that in mind as we look in Ruth chapter 2 and look for those two themes, love and provision, because they are going to be heavy in chapter 2 of Ruth. Look at Ruth chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, following one, um, following one in whose eyes I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Okay. All right, so the author mentions Boaz in verse 1. Keep in mind, the story of Ruth is, I think we miss this sometimes. We think that the Bible's just retelling a series of facts. But these are stories being told, they're they're true stories, but they're being told by a storyteller, by an author who's trying to emphasize points and also has literary tools at their disposal. So the mention of Boaz at the beginning of this chapter in, in verse 1 that just kind of is random almost, and then we move on from that, it's designed for you to go, okay, what, you know, what's his part in this? What, what is he going to play? It's creating of suspense, all right? Now, we only really learn a couple things about Boaz. He's wealthy. Um, this would have been more than just uh, that he had a large bank account. This kind of would have said that he was like a man of the upper class, like a man of society or a well-known renowned man. Uh, some of your Bibles will even say uh, like a man of power or something like this. They don't, they don't, they don't all say wealthy. Um, and then in verse 2, we see Ruth abruptly request to go and glean. Okay, the phrase in Hebrew is abrupt in verse 2. She says, please let me go glean. And the reason it's abrupt is it's designed to show you that there is no time that has elapsed between them arriving and her going out to glean. They basically just got in town. She hasn't had time to rest and recuperate from this long journey they've been on. And she basically showed up and said, okay, I'm going to take seriously the idea of getting to work and providing for myself and for, for my stepmother. So Ruth is showing immediately this determination and loyalty to Naomi that she said she would have. Now let's talk about gre- gleaning for a second. Um, 
So when the harvest happened, you would have the reapers, and the reapers were men, and they would go through and they would they would uh, essentially scythe the stalks and pile them in their left hand. And when they had a pile big enough, they would lay it down, and then in, behind them, the maidservants, the women, would come and they would tie it into bundles. And they, they, these are called sheaves. And then as they progressed through the field, anything that got dropped or anything that they missed, they weren't allowed to go back for. Now, this is actually codified. This is in Leviticus that they are, they're, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, that they're not allowed to um, get all of the field, for instance. They have to leave some of the outskirts untouched, and they're not allowed to go back for things they drop. And the reason for this is because God was teaching the people of Israel how to care for the people in their society that had the least. It was actually designed, it was a, a, a law that was essentially charity. And it was designed so that people who were poor, people that had bad circumstances could come in and they could kind of scavenge what got missed and eat essentially for that day. It wasn't a high-yield uh, high type occupation, especially if a, there was a lot of gleaners. They would have only gotten really enough for maybe a day or two to eat and even then not to be... Uh, full, like we think about it, but just to, to keep going. Um, so Ruth says, before she goes out, she says, in whose eyes I find favor. This is a humble statement, but it, it shows us a total dependence. Ruth knows her status right now. She's saying, whoever I go out and glean their field, I depend totally on their provision. I depend totally on their uh, mercies and grace and kindness. This is essentially should be our attitude towards God, right? This idea of like, I am totally dependent on God. Everything I get comes from Him. It's not an entitlement, which is what we see of a lot, a lot today. Now, the interesting thing also is Ruth is identified in these first, in verse, or in, uh, I think verse two, as a Moabite. Uh, it's the first time she's, she is identified as a Moabitess through the chapter, which is three or four times. What the author is trying to do is he's trying to give you a picture. He's trying to reemphasize in your head, this person is a foreigner, an outsider. And the reason that that matters is because things like gleaning, they were designed for the people of Israel to share with other Israelites. Like in the law, for instance, uh, Israelites couldn't collect interest from other Israelites, but they could collect interest from foreigners. See, so all the laws of mercy, all the things that had to do with God's people, they only applied to God's people. So the, the author's emphasizing to you, Ruth doesn't belong here, and none of this applies to her. She, she has to be grateful for everything she gets. Um, and then there's two things you need to know about verse 3. First of all, verse 3, if you read it just in the English and keep going, it looks like the beginning chronologically of the story. She goes out and she gleans. That's not actually what's happening. Verse 3 is like an overview. Verse 3 is almost like a chapter introduction. The author's saying, this is what, this is now the setting. We're going to go look at Ruth gleaning in the fields. But that's not happening yet. Um, and then the other thing you need to see is the storyteller. In my Bible, it says, and she happened to come on a portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Uh, some Bibles will say, and it, and it chanced or it, hap it, it was kind of random or lucky. But the storyteller, again, he's being, uh, he's being 
kind of sly about this. You're supposed to picture the storyteller going, and it just so happened that she came on Boaz's field. So this is, he, what he's indicating is this didn't just happen. There's something behind the scenes going on here. There's someone else at work, right? And these are the moments that you're supposed to pick up on God's intervention in this story. All right, so look in verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Okay. All right. So Boaz, first of all, you need to see this. It starts out, says, now behold. Okay. Behold in the Bible always means pay attention. Listen carefully. Look, look at what's happening. The reason it starts out like that is because Boaz, Boaz owns a lot of fields. He doesn't visit every field every day. He doesn't visit some fields any days, right? He has a foreman for a reason. He's, he's the, the general manager, if you will, right? So he doesn't have to come out to the field. It just so happens, again, by chance, that Boaz goes and checks this field on this day while Ruth is here, right? So again, we're supposed to see God beginning to form these circumstances. And we immediately see a glimpse of his godly character, right? He comes out and he says, may the Lord be with you, right? This is a, this is a man who takes, takes his faith seriously. This is just a glimpse of his character. And then he sees Ruth. Now the term here, it says, um, it says, whose young woman is this? This is more of an idiom, and it's it's also ambiguous. All right. There's two things that this phrase can mean. It can either mean who employs her, or it can mean is she marryable? Now here's the interesting thing. The author, again, is he's teasing us, right? He's giving us this phrase that can be used both ways. You can almost picture Boaz doing this. He shows up, and he sees this, this woman standing here, and he goes to his foreman, and he goes, Who's that? She's single? Uh, working for anybody? <laughs> he's, he, we don't know what his intentions are, but we're supposed, to start, we're supposed to start guessing at them. We're supposed to wonder what is going on in Boaz's mind as he sees this young woman. And then in verse 6, the foreman identifies Ruth, and he identifies her as the Moabite, right? Um, we're going to find out in verse 11 that Boaz knows already who Ruth is by reputation, but this is the first time that he's seen her. At this moment, he's putting a face with a name. And then in verse 7, we need to understand a couple things. First of all, gleaning, like I said, it's, it's essentially like recycling aluminum cans. It's not a way to make a living. You might be able to get you know, something off the dollar menu after a day of recycling cans, right? So gleaning is not a high a yielding profession that people would have done. It was for the poor. Ruth, she realizes she can't feed herself and her stepmother from gleaning. She doesn't have a chance at doing that. And you got to keep in mind, Ruth is a widow. She's a woman in ancient times, which already is, is 
uh, low status, right? A woman in the in ancient times would have had no rights. And then on top of that, she's a foreign woman from an enemy nation, all right? She has no claim to anything. And what she's doing is she's asking for something borderline inappropriate. She's saying that as, as they go through, right, they, they gather the wheat or the barley into bundles and they put it off to the side. Now, the gleaners would have had to have kept their distance from those piles. They weren't allowed to get near them, in between them. They could, it would have been thought maybe they were stealing from them or, or anything like that. They had to keep their distance. They could only get the things that had been really dropped behind and left, okay? What she's asking for is to be allowed to glean in between the sheave piles where there would have been more things dropped. Those things probably would have been collected when the sheave bundles were collected, but she's, she's wanting to get in there where there's more, all right? Again, this woman has no status, and she's asking for something that the normal reaction would have been, are you kidding? Get out of here. Like, no, of course you can't do that, right? She's, she's humble, right? Ruth knows her status. She knows that she has no right, but at the same time, she's bold. She's bold, and she's asking for the only thing that she knows how to feed herself and Ruth. Now, the foreman, he's, he's like at his end with Ruth. Right, And here's how we know this. First of all, he either said no or he can't say yes. So he's just had her waiting. This is why you need to understand that verse 3 is not chronological. It's an overview. She's basically showed up and asked permission to glean in between the sheaves. And she's just been waiting for somebody to give her permission to do so. The foreman, he doesn't know what to do. So you ever ask somebody a question and they give you this really like almost too detailed answer? Because they're they're trying to be like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, she was doing this and X, Y, and Z, and and I just I don't know. What do you think, right? That's what the foreman's answer essentially is. He gives he gives Boaz all the information he has, and at the end, there's there's actually some idioms here. So, the if you look in, let me look at this. If you look in verse seven, it says. So she has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. That second phrase, she has been sitting in the house for a little while. That, that is actually an idiom. It would have, it, it's not translated very well in our Bibles. The English doesn't really do it justice. What he's trying to say is, it's like she doesn't have anywhere else to live. And the first phrase, it sounds more like this. She's basically living here. She's taken up residence. I don't know what to do with her. She won't go home. It's like she doesn't even have a home. That's the frustration the foreman's having right now. That's what comes out of those two uh, Hebrew phrases. So then, look in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on, do not go on from this one, but join my young women here. Keep your eyes on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have ordered the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Okay. Now listen carefully. That's, that's what my Bible says. Listen carefully. Again, this, this actually would have sounded more like this. Haven't you heard? This, this is designed to get a response like this. What? What? I'm paying attention. Haven't I heard What? So he looks at her, he hears what the foreman has to say, and he goes, haven't you heard? Stay right 
here. And the point of this is he's making it clear to her, the foreman, and anybody else that's listening, that's working this field, she's welcome here. She's welcome here, and I don't want her going anywhere else. And he says, I ordered them not to touch you. Now, this could mean a few things. Um, here's what I think. I think that uh, the, the most evidence points towards this. As they glean the field, uh, the gleaners would kind of get competitive with each other, and in the, in the striving to get more food, they would get inappropriately close to the reapers or to the sheaves, and they could get beaten. They could basically get you know, kicked or shoved or told to get back or kind of a crowd control type thing. And what, what Boaz is saying is, I've ordered that, that that doesn't happen to you, that you're allowed to glean and you're allowed to get what you need and nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to lay a hand on you. And then, and then he goes even further. He offers her the water that the servants draw. This is the equivalent of saying you have access to the employee's break room. He's not hiring her, but he's giving her something that, again, this wouldn't have been given to any gleaner. This would have only been given to his actual servants, his harvesters, the people working his field. So this is, this is a status upgrade. Now, there's a theme that's starting here. And this theme, this theme runs through the Old Testament, and, and Paul is really going to be the one that brings it to, to fruition in the New Testament, which is this idea. The Gentiles are being included. The, the idea of being the people of God even from Genesis to Revelation all the way to the end, is that it's about what your heart status is to God. So that theme is being presented here in Ruth that even though she's a Moabite, which we're told over and over again in this chapter, her heart status is she's a child of the living God. And that's what matters. And that's what Boaz realizes. And then what does she do? She is stunned. This is way more than she was hoping for. She says, thank you, essentially, but she, she says, why? Why are you doing all of this extra that I didn't even think would happen? Listen, she didn't think her original request was going to get granted. Why'd she ask? Because it was her only hope. She asked for the only thing that was going to give her provision, but she didn't expect that much, especially not the level to which Boaz goes. Listen, there's probably a whole sermon in here about dating. I was looking at those themes while I was studying this, but we'll, maybe we'll get there another time. The point is, he puts her first and she respects him. Ruth reveals an awareness of her own status. She says at the end of this section, since I am a foreigner. We've heard her described as the Moabitess, as the, Moab, as the woman from Moab, but she is very aware that she's a foreigner, that she's an outsider, at least externally, right? Because what Boaz sees is that internally she's a child of God. So now look, look in verse 11. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and may your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay. In the Old Testament, we have types. Types are heroes, essentially. 
that are designed to give us a glimpse of the coming Messiah. They're designed to show us characteristics that Jesus would someday live out perfectly. Boaz is a type. He is someone designed to give us a character trait of who Jesus is. Now, occasionally, types respond perfectly how Jesus would respond. Sometimes a type, uh, I mean, they're all human and they all fail. David was a type, but we know that he has major failures. Moses was a type, but he has major failures. What we see here in Boaz is that he's a type, and in verse 11 and 12, I believe he is dead on. We talk about praying for things in God's will and how if you pray for things in God's will, you'll get them. Boaz is offering up a prayer here, a prayer of provision. And as we see the story of Ruth unfold, he's going to get it. Ruth is going to get it because he's praying for something that matches God's heart exactly. Boaz says, you left everything after a disaster, after your husband your, your stepsisters or your uh, sister-in-law's husband and your father-in-law all died. You still left everything to take care of your mother-in-law and to follow God. Again, this is this reckless abandon. Here's the thing. Do you think when she made the choice between following Naomi or going back to her in-law's house, she knew that she was making a choice between probably kind of a, a chance at a normal life and being in the lowest class of society in a foreign country and being poor. She knew that. She was aware of that in chapter 1. But here's the thing about God. God notices our full-on devotion to Him, and when we take refuge in Him, He takes care of us. God doesn't call us to Himself and then hang us out to dry. God says, leave everything. Don't have a plan B. Ruth burned all her bridges. She burned her plan B. And God says, watch me take care of you. Now, again, this isn't prosperity gospel. Because Ruth left everything, does she just, does like the barley just rain down in her front door and she just has to walk out every morning and kind of scoop it in? It's not just this blessing, this miraculous kind of endowment of wealth. She's still poor but she's being taken care of by God. Boaz says, may the Lord reward your work. Listen, God won't call you to something and then not sustain you in it. The sustainment may not look the way you want it to look, but actually that just means the problem's on your end. God will sustain you in whatever he calls you to. Some of you don't believe this. And this, this is the whole problem. The reason that you're living life your way and constantly seeing it fail and fall through and suck is because you don't believe that if you do things God's way, He'll provide. This book is, is the owner's manual on life. If you do what this book says, God provides. And again, God hasn't always provided for me in the ways I saw the ways that I wanted him to provide for me. But the more I follow this book, the more I realize what real provision looks like. And I'm never let down. I'm never let down by God's provision. Look in verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord. 
for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not like one of your female servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she got up to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you are to purposely slip out some of her grain, uh, slip out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it so that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Okay. She has, in, in verse 13, she has gratitude and humility. She actually, what she's saying in that sentence is, I'm lower even than the female servants. I'm lower even than, than the female gleaners, than anyone else here. I am the lowest of all in this field right now. Uh, this, this statement would have been all, uh, like a staggering amount of humility. And then what we see in verse 14 is that she's elevated to be basically a part of the family. Boaz says, come eat with the reapers. She would have sat next to the, all of his workers, his harvesters. He's, he, again, elevating her status. And then it says she eats until she was satisfied. This is incredible. For somebody in poverty, satisfaction is not a thing. They don't eat until they're satisfied. In the ancient times, if you were poor, it was, it was enough just to, to get what you needed to be alive. She eats until she is satisfied. And then in verse 15 and 16, Boaz is, is even more generous. He says, she's allowed to glean between the sheaves, do not rebuke her. And then he says, and actually, I want you to pull some extra grain out of the sheaves and drop it on the ground so she can get it. Okay, here's what you see here. Again, if Boaz is a type, God provides in ways that are unexpected. God provides in ways that you can't see. God provides when you're not looking. Like Boaz is going out of his way to provide for Ruth in every way he can, short of just literally having it delivered to her house. And in verse 17, we see Ruth's work ethic. She works until the evening, till the day is over. She doesn't cut it short because she's got so much, like more than enough, because she's being blessed. She works hard all day long, and then she beats it out. This is the process of separating the kernels from the stalks, and it would have made it easier to carry home. She would have put it in a basket. And it says she had an ephah. That is about 29 pounds of grain. This, in the ancient world, would have been a half a month's wages. She has just made more gleaning it, like to an unheard of extent. She gets more than enough. God is in the business of providing more than enough. But what did she get? She got what she needed in that it was food. You know what she didn't get? A Ferrari. It's not about pleasure. She didn't ask for cable television. She got what she needed, but she got it in abundance. God didn't shortchange her. He gave her plenty. Let's talk about God's blessings for a second. Sometimes you do 
nothing at all. Sometimes you pray and God miraculously provides and you go, wow, praise God for what he just did. Sometimes God's blessings, it seems like you do everything. And this is, I think, where we miss it. Do you know that every day you go to work and you, you are healthy and you get a paycheck and you can eat because of that job? That's God's blessings. That's God's provision. You may think I'm doing everything in this, but the reality is, praise God that you have this blessing. And then sometimes, and I'd argue mostly, it's a mix. This is the whole point of Ruth. The author is trying to, to illustrate to us the inner working of our decisions and our plans and our lives and God's will and, and God's character. So Ruth, let's put it like this. Does Ruth, is she able to get God's blessing if she doesn't go out and work? She can't get it. It's not to say that she's earning it, but it didn't, again, show up at her doorstep. She had to go work all day. She, she was bold and faithful in the morning. She works until the evening. And God was able to bless her because she put herself in a position to be blessed. And clearly, without God's provision, Ruth's work would have been in vain. She could have gone out from morning to evening and been like all the rest of the gleaners, and she'd have walked away with an, a mouthful of food. So it's both. God is providing. God is the one orchestrating the circumstances and giving the blessing, but Ruth is participating by working hard, doing the right thing. This is not, by the way, well, God helps those who help themselves. No, this is just that God, God wants us to be a certain kind of people, and then He blesses us because He loves us, right? If you are over here just being lazy, God isn't going to bless that. Why? Because then it shows people that being lazy gets blessings from God. But if you're over here working hard and being the right kind of person, then God can bless you and say, and, and it gives the testimony that when people are doing what God has said to do, there's blessings. He takes care of them. Look in verse 18. And she picked it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took some out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness from the living and from the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You are to stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, so, uh, with, with his young woman, so that the others do not assault you in another field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay. She comes home, and Naomi is shocked. Something we see in Hebrew literature is that repetition is emphasis, right? Uh, so when Naomi says... 
where did you glean today and where did you work? That double question that's the same is designed to, to, set, to show emphasis and shock. Naomi is like, where did you go today that you've come back with all this food? And then on top of that, what does Ruth do next? She pulls out the leftovers from her lunch and she gives it to her. Okay, that doesn't make any sense, right? Naomi's like, I thought you were going to come back with a mouthful of food for us to share. And here you've got 29 pounds of barley and lunch. You brought me leftovers. This is crazy. This is a shocking moment for Naomi. And then she finds out that, that Boaz owns the field where she gleaned and told her to stay. Now, she says he is one of our family redeemers. Again, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 25 actually in both, you see the laws of redemption. God had codified in their laws ways that they were to care for people, ways that they were to show support for the least in the community. This is uh, God teaching us how to treat people. James in the New Testament eventually will say, what is religion except to care for widows and orphans? That is true religion. What he's saying is God's heart, I've been saying this for weeks now in here, know God and make him known. The most loving thing you can do for somebody is to make him known, is to make Jesus known to them. And when you love people, you love God because God's heart is to love people. And the entire system of the law was designed around loving God and loving people. And then it says that she stayed not only for the barley harvest, but also for the wheat harvest. I've, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but we talk about names of God. Names of God are designed to show us characteristics of God that are, that are lived out in God infinitely. God can't not be his name at all times. He is always his nature. It is always running in perfection. One of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. This shows up when Abraham is taking Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, and God provides the ram as a substitute for Isaac. But the interesting thing about Jehovah Jireh is so, so if the name of God is God always, then Jehovah Jireh is the Lord who provides always. He's always providing. He can't not be providing. He's, it's just in his nature to provide. The interesting thing is Jehovah Jireh in that story, it, it has one of the, well, from what I've seen, one of the only conditions on the name of God. It actually says the Lord who provides on the Lord's mountain. So it seems to be a restriction on the name of God, which I just said isn't the case. Well, here's the interesting thing. When you are wandering away from God, when you're in sin, you know what God's provision looks like? Looks like discipline. Because discipline is designed to turn us back to where? The Lord's mountain. When we're in God's presence, He's able to provide in a way that we want it. Blessing. The, the, the thing we think of when we think provision. And by the grace of God, when we walk away from his mountain, he provides discipline. So we'll go back to his mountain. So even with the condition the Lord provides on the Lord's mountain, God is so perfect. 
He lives out his names in such perfection that even in that restriction of on the Lord's mountain, he provides even off his mountain. It just doesn't look the way we want it to look because no one likes being disciplined. God provides all the time. It's Easter. You're going to go to second service and we're going to talk about God's ultimate provision. The provision for our eternities. When you think about Easter, I want you to think about Ruth. A story where God provided. But here's the thing. You can't just... It's, it's easy. I just had this conversation this week with someone. Um, when Lazarus dies, one of his sisters says... Jesus says, do you believe that he'll rise again? And one of his sisters says, well, yeah, I, I, I believe he'll rise again at the end like, like we all will. It's easy to believe that God's got your eternity. But here's the thing. What's harder? Is it harder for God to save me for all eternity? Or is it harder for God to give me my necessities right now? It's harder for God to provide for all eternity. And yet we believe that easily. If I believe easily that God is going to save me in heaven... Why don't I believe He'll provide for me right now? I'm trying to live my life in a way that says, God, if you've got my eternity, you've got my today. So today, when you hear about Easter and about God's eternal provision, remember that He provided for Ruth for today. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.